Welcome to Call It Like I See It, presented by Disruption Now. I'm James Keyes, and on this episode of Call It Like I See It, we are going to discuss some things that people are discussing as far as what lies on the horizon for our economy. Serious people, you know, what serious people are talking about. We want to make sense of, of the, the alphabet soup we hear about, you know, with V-shaped recoveries or L-shaped recessions, um, and, and try to figure out, you know, what seems real, what seems likely, and so forth. Joining me today is the man who, when the situation calls, is known to take a muscle-bound man and put his face in the sand. <laughs> Tunde Ogunlana. Tunde, have you crushed anyone like a jelly bean lately? Yeah, man. <laughs> I had a busy weekend taking care of foes, brother. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Now, we're recording this on May 25th, 2020. And as countries around the world have really started to open back up in light of the COVID-19 outbreak, and try to get their economies back on track, we want to take a look at what may be in store for us through the lens of the economy. Many industries have been affected by COVID-19. Some, like the, the restaurant and hospitality industries, have just been devastated. Uh, the stock market, though, has rallied, you know, and, and seems to reflect the thinking of things maybe getting back to normal pretty quickly. Uh, but there are those out there that are ringing the alarm as far as where we're heading. And we've also started to see calls for some relatively drastic moves for some unexpected places. So to start, Tunde, many people speak of a V-shaped economic recovery as far as that's what we're heading for, that's what we want, uh, and the stock market seems to be betting on it. What is a V-shaped recovery, and does it seem like it's something that's likely to happen? Um, so good questions. Uh, so I'll, ask, I'll answer the first one, sorry. Um, what is a V-shaped recovery? Uh, that is, if you can visualize the letter V, um, and just kind of a line that goes down and then immediately shoots back up. Um, so that's the idea of a V-shaped recovery. There's also also others that I'm sure will bring up other letter examples, uh, U-shape, L-shape, and W-shape. But in the case of V-shape, the idea is that you have a sharp economic downturn uh, in terms of fundamentals of the economy, uh, like a recession, that that is immediately just kind of turned around and um, things kind of swing back up and, and it ends pretty quickly in a sense. And then that is reflected um, by a stock chart that also looks like a V, where the market crashes, comes down pretty hard, uh, and then and then rebounds pretty quickly thereafter. And um, so almost like things just kind of pick up where they left off, but there was this dip, you yeah. know, and then it but it then it takes right back off. Yeah, and, and again for um, those who want to go look this up at all, you look at charts of let's say the fourth quarter of twenty eighteen through the first quarter of twenty nineteen. So you figure a quarter is three months, ninety day period. So over that six month period, we had the market uh, basically crash, uh, you know, well mini crash, go down about twenty percent in a three month period, two and a half, three months, the end of twenty eighteen. Uh, to be immediately followed by an upswing in January and February of the following year um, to almost get back to where it was by the end of the first quarter of mm -hmm. 2019. And that was all caused by a fear of uh, rising interest rates. And um, that fear was, was, was uh, put to the side by the Federal Reserve promising uh, you know, to keep things liquid and the, and, the, and the engines moving of the economy at low rates. And so... Wall Street felt better, uh, and money started pouring back into the market, and we never actually really got a recession or anything other than a stock market downturn. So it was a quick, what they call, again, V-shaped recovery. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, so, does so that seem likely to you in this time frame? 
No, and that's you know, what I was going to go is the second part. Yeah, the answer kind of what do I see in this this in, in instance? Um, I don't see it being that easy, unfortunately. Um, I I think that what what has happened here in um, you know this last two months since let's call it mid March uh, in in the economy is we've lost uh, all the jobs uh, that were created in the last decade. So from 2010 to 2020. Uh, there were 22 million jobs created, and we've lost 30 million jobs approximately, well, actually 36 million unemployment claims. And uh, there's estimates those numbers could be higher because a lot of states have been have, having issues with their unemployment uh, claim sites, and not everybody who's trying to file for unemployment has actually been counted and has been able to get in the system. So um, we're looking at unemployment north of 20% now. And in the recession of 2008 through 2010, which is the most recent kind of real economic pain that we felt as a country and as a global society, um, it took one year for us to go from full employment to a 10% unemployment. And we saw how painful that was uh, for, again, the global economy. And we remember the stories of you know, people defaulting on mortgages and auto notes and, and, and credit cards and all that stuff. And... Um, what we've had happen here is uh, 36 million jobs lost in two months. Uh, so unfortunately, the damage that is going to be caused in terms of people without income who cannot pay, you know, their 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 bills, uh, that those numbers have not even fully come out yet because it's just so recent. So it's going to take a few more months for the negative information to really hit kind of the system yeah. for us to see the real damage. And then the last thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up for, for the next question, is um, we always talk about the unemployed, uh, which is a huge number, as I just mentioned. But I think what, what, what isn't also talked about are the amount of Americans who still have a job but have been either furloughed or um, have just had their salaries cut. You know, they're, they're, they've had to take anywhere between a 10 and probably 30% haircut on their income just because their employers are telling them they can't pay them as much. So that, I think, all of that combined is going to lead to what we're going to see as a behavioral change by Americans and by the rest of the world, I'm sure, as well, which is we're going to get more defensive, probably spend less on discretionary things and try and save more money as we anticipate that this is not going to be easy for us as individuals and families. So that's all going to hurt an economy that has always, you know, traditionally, I think for our lifetime, Jimmy, has been around two-thirds, let's say 66 to 70% based on consumption. So well, that's, yeah, that's yeah, why I, I mean, think that, yeah, it's going to be, I don't think this one is going to be as easy as a V-shape. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> we'll the issue. We'll have some other the, letters <laughs> that <will be> represented. <laughs> no, but that's the issue. The, the, um, in our economy, demand is oftentimes like we, we think of workers and we think of you know people having money to spend and so forth. But workers are a large part of the demand that drives everything. And so when you have 30 plus million workers documented out of out of a job, that's 30. That, that's less money that they will have to spend. That's less security that they will have that will make them willing to spend the money they have. And that's the issue that get into that you just mentioned, even with the people who have jobs. You got to feel like the money is going to keep rolling in if you're going to keep spending it. And so everyone basically is going is more likely to spend less. That less that lower consumption is going to make it very difficult, absent some other circumstance or some other action that's taken that's going to make people more willing to spend. It's going to boost people's confidence into where they're able to confidence and 
pocketbook to where they're able to and willing to spend. And so I'm very skeptical of a V-shaped recovery for that reason. I just think that it's, I don't know that our society, particularly in the United States, I don't know that our society and our public or our leadership has the will to do the types of things that would be needed. You know, because I know, you know, you, we talk of the jobs lost here in America, but like, if you look at the way our political spectrum is set up, you know, Bernie Sanders, we consider, you know, a radical, you know, politician for all his economic policies and so forth. But he's to the right. He's more conservative to like what a lot of the European countries do, you know, just as a matter of course, you know. Yeah. And so like Germany doesn't even lose a, a, a million jobs. You know, Germany's lost a few hundred thousand jobs. We've lost 30 something million because of the way they do business. But that's just how they, it's not just the leadership that's, that's, that they're saying that stuff. That's how the people are wired. You know, they have a more, hey, let's, let's make this stuff happen. We got to do things to protect ourselves, our society collectively. We don't really have that. You know, like we're, we're kind of every man for themselves. And, you know, there's pros and cons to that. And when things hit the fan, <laughs> that's where those cons kind of come up. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, it, it's interesting though, in the sense that this does, kind of reveal things as they are like this is this is showing you you know what we as americans value this is showing you you know how we respond to the 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 the, the, the trouble you know like hey things are happening how we respond tells a lot about us um uh, noriel rabini you know who's an academic and who predicted the great recession and, and did so like with impressive precision in terms of how he said it was going to go from the housing market and and you know and the, the, all these different things um, he says that a V-shaped recon- economy or V-shaped recovery is lunacy and that actually we're looking at a weak recovery, initial recovery, followed by like a decade long recession. What are your thoughts on that? That's like they, yeah, they, call, no, they call this guy Dr. Doom. But <laughs> goodness, that is like that's that's terrifying, right? Yeah, no, I think um, I read that piece and, um, you know, he speaks very uh, soberly and um, it all makes sense the way he explains it. Um Look, I think I think uh, we all see if if again this is where it's it's it, it's just a little bit difficult to predict because I mean he predicted, like you said, accurately the Great Recession, and and in terms of he he predicted it due to the factors that led to it, which were easily seen if you're someone like him that 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 you know studies these things and kind of doesn't just drink the Kool Aid on TV and and the talking head stuff. Well, it's easy and, to see in hindsight, though. Like when, when when we look back, it's like, oh, well, of course. Well, you know, no. But- what I'm saying is, he called it out like before, like in '06. He was saying this is a bubble that's going to burst on the housing market, and he saw the excesses of debt, and that's what I mean. Because no, I'm, he, I'm not disagreeing with you. Let me yeah. let me let me make this point, I guess, more clear. I'm saying that it's e- we it's easy we can say that it's easy to see now in hindsight because the factors we see how all those factors played out. But he was alone, or you know, the, the, if it was easy to see at the time, then more people would have said it. Well, no, you know, there were enough people saying it. It's just that what happens, like a lot of times, it's they're drowned out by the cheerleaders. And um, I mean, I remember reading some really quality economists, um, not him, but others that also were calling for a lot of things that ended up happening. But if you try to say that on a CNBC or, you know, some talking head show, you're laughed off the stage. And so um, a lot of time because, you know. The system always wants to sell positive, right? I mean, that's just kind of, you know, it's in no one's interest at, at the level of the system, meaning banks, uh, financial institutions, Wall Street, um, the, the, the media, kind of corporate side. 
it, it's in no one's interest to go there and say, hey, everybody, there's a there's a, a, a tornado that's coming financially. Sell all your stuff now because they all make money off of all of us being invested. So not going to go down that track, but I would say this, that I do think um, he is he is very um, like he, he gives a very sobering, realistic assessment of where this may go. Um, I think he he is. It's right to say that we will have some sort of recovery in the short run just because as systems come back online, that's going to be better than when everything was shut. So that's going to lead to a little bit of economic stimulus in a sense. Uh, will it get back to where it was you know, when everything was normal and things weren't shut down and 36 million people that are now unemployed were working? Um, I don't think it happens like that, but that gets back to opinion and not having a crystal ball. So I do agree with his stance um, that this is going to be a long ride and it's going to be, a, I think this is a game changer personally. I think this is going to just change a lot of our behavior and um, we can't predict how central banks and others react. I think that's what happened in the last recession is had, had the central bank not reacted, uh, we would have had a great depression 12 years ago. So obviously the fact they already reacted here is, is a positive thing in the short run um, and has probably helped stop you know, 50 million jobs lost or something even worse than what we've already seen. But can, can stimulus from central banks offset the inevitability of a longer-term negative economic environment just due to all these other factors that are in play? Um, I don't think so. I think that at some point, you know, stuff hits the fan and, 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 and things are going to need to reset and it's probably going to take some time. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And, and I wonder, I should say, um, the, the central bank action in the Great Recession, following the Great Recession, it definitely lessened the pain. Some are saying that they could have been more aggressive even, you know, government and central banks as far as the way they did it and got a better, a stronger recovery. But you also wonder whether the, the, the way we respond to these things like that leave us in worse situations when something like this comes up. Because one thing about the Great Recession was that that was user error, so to speak. Like that was, that, that problem was created by greed and by people gaming the system, trying to make more money. This one was not created necessarily by user error. You know, you could say it's been mismanaged, but even without mismanaged, like there are plenty of countries haven't mismanaged it and it's still taking a chunk out of, of everything that's going on. Um, and so even with, you know, you look at the actions, what they're doing, you wonder if the things that are being done to prevent this from going really poorly right now actually will leave us positioned, be, leave us very vulnerable for what ends up coming in, in, in a year or in two, in two years. And that's not to say that they shouldn't do anything because the problem that's in front of us is, is, is dire enough is, is that we should be doing something about it. If we, can, if we can prevent 15 million jobs from being lost and do 35 instead of 50, whatever we do is probably worthwhile. But it may set us up for something worse. You know, like it, it, it may leave us, I guess I should better put it, worse prepared to weather further storm. Yeah, no, I think um, that's why this is just unprecedented. And, and, and like, this is like when I made that joke about us getting hit by two asteroids, you know. <laughs> Remember, it can't be one. It's got to be can't, two. No, no, not one. But, but um, again, because this is a virus and it's health-related and, you know, you can't see it, it's, I think a lot of people, it's harder to understand what just happened and the massive toll that it's going to have, no matter what 
direction. I think you put it well that whether this is mismanaged or not, we have enough examples around the world where, you know, I think it's all based on opinion. We can agree that some have managed it better than others, but it doesn't matter from an economic standpoint. Um, there is pain that has been caused and will and will continue to be caused from this, and there will be fallout that is totally unpredictable because part of it is also, just as we all know, and not to get into the health side of this debate or discussion, but um, you know, does the world see a second wave of this come in the wintertime? Um, do we have a vaccine ever or in a short term versus a longer period of time? Does the virus itself begin to mutate once a vaccine is found and, and become something that's totally morphed a year or two later where that vaccine doesn't mean anything? I think all those things, how they play out, uh, will determine how, how long and how bad this really gets. Because one can imagine if this, God forbid, became like HIV or Ebola, where there's never a vaccine, it'll take a long time because at some point huma humanity will have adjusted to this, but that might take a decade or a whole generation. Versus if we have a vaccine in 12 months and the virus doesn't mutate, then one could assume in two, three years, this thing is potentially eradicated globally. So I think it's still early to tell really the long-term effects, but I, I do agree that um, there is no coming out of this without some pain. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, and you're right too that countries like Germany and others appear to be have been better prepared for something like this um, for probably a lot of reasons. I'm not going to say it's just their economic models. Um, could be, you know, the, the, like you said, the, the lack of mismanagement from an early point on by their own administrations, all that. I think it's a, lot, a combination of a lot of these factors. Um, but one thing is that they have a different relationship um, in a lot of the um, first world countries outside of the United States, you know, or, you know, that didn't make sense. Um, other first world nations um, where there's a different relationship between the labor force and the capital. Uh, and yeah. so that's where I think uh, by having this happen so fast, it kind of caught us, you know, it's like the tide washed out and we were the ones that were naked as a society um, as relates to how we take care of those at the bottom. Well, yeah, well not just the bottom, just also in the middle and just the workers. I mean, I think that... You know, in this country, we have a very antagonistic relationship between capital and labor, um, much more so, like you said, than a lot of the other first world countries um, where there's a more cooperative relationship. When you got, you know, uh, workers on the board, on corporate boards, you know, in Germany, things like that. And so there's the, the problems as, as they look to solve problems. Oftentimes, it's not just, hey, how can we bail out capital? It's like, well, hey, how can we solve problems in a way that, that all boats, you know, all the tide can, can lift all boats? Um, and we just don't have that here. Um, and, you know, which has made particularly interesting, you know, like Mark Cuban, a billionaire owner of, of the Dallas Mavericks. He seems to, to see some of the things, some of the things that we feel, you know, in terms of these concerns as far as, hey, where is the demand going to come from here moving forward? You know, if... if 30-something million people are out of work, and it took a decade to create 20-something million jobs, then where is all the money to spend going to come from? He seems to be voicing this concerns, and there's been some other billionaires we've seen. Uh, I know the, the, the CEO of Chase, people saying, whoa, whoa billionaires uh, ringing the alarm about income inequality. 
<laughs> is about <laughs> the, the most opposite thing we've seen here in the U.S. You know, in the last forty years or so. But we see it now. You know, Mark Cuban has has said like he's been throwing around Bernie Sanders type ideas. You know, like, hey, let's let's give everybody a check, you know, for a thousand bucks a month or whatever it would be. Um, it, the federal jobs program, things like that. He he's throwing. He sounds like FDR, yeah. and um, you know, a modern day type of thing. Um, is did this hit you? Shock you as much as it shocked me as far as seeing the because the billionaires are normally just trying to figure out ways to keep workers from having money, even um, though again they need the workers to spend money to make money, but. This is this is one of the few times I've seen you know, other than a Soros or something like that, like the people who actually have good for society in mind, you know, but like tr- tried and true capitalist billionaires saying, hey, maybe we have a problem that, that nobody has any money but us. <laughs> no, I think, look, it's nice to see these guys coming out, especially guys like Ray Dalio as well, who are the yeah. more Wall Street type of billionaires, um, which you don't really hear this type of stuff from them. But look, so so. On, on the other side of that coin is there's a lot of billionaires we're not hearing from, so they might be the ones that, <laughs> that don't agree with their contemporaries. But no, I, I was going to say this though. I mean, first of all, it's nice to see um, people of that level of wealth having these concerns, and I would say I think that they're the smart ones uh, in the sense that you know they're aware enough to understand that there's a reason, there's a system that. Uh, has allowed them to flourish and, and become billionaires. That that their existence at the top is is kind of on the shoulders of others in a sense. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, I mean that that just you know if we can imagine that this in a sense capitalism is a pyramid system. Um, I'm not calling it a scheme or anything like that, but it is a system where you know you you can't have the janitor making more money than the CEO, right? There's a certain equilibrium or balance that has to take place if you're at the top. And these guys seem to understand that their existence at the top is somewhat related to the health of people all the way at the down at the bottom. Um, and maybe they weren't this type. I mean, that's where it was interesting in the Mark Cuban comments where he acknowledged, he said four or five months ago, I would have thought I was crazy for saying these things. But circumstances have changed. And I think, again, that that too was a good look into a mindset of someone like him because you know, we can also say there's a reason these guys are at the top is probably because they have the ability to change and pivot quickly without letting things like their emotions get in their way and their egos. Here's a guy that's not saying, oh, because I'm a billionaire capitalist and I believe this, that I have to stick to this line. Um, he's able to quickly see the reality and, and just pivot and say, this is now a change that caused me to change my outlook on things. And you know, he's not uh, proposing for things to go on forever in certain things that he's proposing, like you alluded to some of his Bernie Sanders proposal types or type of proposals. But what he's basically saying is, you know, we need to do something now to prevent it from getting to it, you know, like a Great Depression type of situation. Basically, what he is arguing for is our policies that would help us avoid what Nouriel Rabini is predicting. Because and, and to your point, like what Rubini is doing is, is what someone like him should be doing. He's given us a forecast of really what would happen if this was allowed to act truly in a free market environment. That there's no support, uh, that the, the central banks and the governments don't step in to help, you know, the, the quote unquote average guy or little guy, um, or like you said, even middle and upper middle class people that are going to be hurting. 
and that there's no plan. It's just Lord of the Flies type of thing where everybody's out for themselves. Now, if, if that's or, allowed to happen, or, well, hold on. Or uh, that the, the 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 powers that be will do everything in their power to prop up the people at the top, but not take care of the people at the bottom. It's not just Lord of the Flies, but it could also be socialism. It, Rabini yeah, is basically banking on the greed. Be the people who are greedy being the ones who dictate what happens. Like I put these two together for this reason because it's actually if 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 you if we do I believe if we do what Mark Cuban is saying his whole trickle up mindset where hey let's put a bunch of money money at the bottom so that we can maintain demand then we can avoid the worst consequences. Rabini is basically his prediction entire set of predictions is based on the idea that that'll never happen. <laughs> Yeah, At least I mean, until there's a lot more pain, consistent with what you've been saying, like I said, for, for as long as I've known you, that people just don't feel enough pain to, to, for their priorities to be or, reorganized in a way that, that goes away from this greed-driven and not, hey, let's, let's make sure that the people at the bottom have enough money to spend so that we can then compete for their, their dollars. Yeah, no, and, and you know, I know I've been saying that since we've known each other, and it's and it's one of those things that it, it hurts me to say it because I, I wish as human beings we were better, but collectively we don't seem to behave that way. So um, I hope that doesn't have to happen because I got to live through it, <laughs> and I'll have a lot of pain with everyone else. So I hope that, um, you know, policymakers and others listen to the kind of the, the uh, let's call it the good-hearted billionaires out there that are, that are trying to... But it's to not just good-hearted, though. It's not just good-hearted. Like, I, I, I know we like to, to phrase it as that, but preserving the system that allows you to make billions of dollars seems to be smart. And that's why yeah. I say, I commend, I, I look at that, like, anybody going into any scenario is going to have a certain level of cognitive bias where it's hard for them to, to see things that do not support their 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 worldview or their mindset they already to look at. So for somebody to come out and say, yeah, I wouldn't have saw this or I wouldn't have said this before, but looking at the at the looking at the the, the facts on the ground, I've actually I think we have to do something different than what I would have would have thought, you know, uh, four months ago. That does say a lot about somebody's ability to read and react, so to speak. Um, but there's a fundamental thing that I just want to mention here that I think is always missed, um, and that is for whatever reason. Um, the, the, the we have very little when it comes to our the way we implement a capitalist system. You know, you said it's kind of like a pyramid, and this kind of it, it made me think of this, or you know, something that I've looked at for a while. And it is like a pyramid. It should be at least the harder the higher you go up, the harder it should be to keep going up. You know, like the, it, it should be at the top, it should be the least number of people, and then at the bottom, it should be the most. Because that's how anything is in life. If you want to become a, a, a all-state, or let's say, let's start an all-county sprinter, it, it's, there's a certain level of effort that goes there. But if you want to become all-state, it, be, it requires much more effort. If you want to become all-American, it becomes much more effort. And there are less people each step that you go up. And then if you want to be an Olympian, you're at the very cream of the crop. It, 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 but it's harder. It takes more work to go from uh, good to great than it does to go from average to good. But finan the financial game doesn't play like that. Like Basically, once you hit a certain threshold in the financial, in, in terms of income, it becomes easier to acquire more. And that's the breakdown that I always see. It's just like when you guys have distorted the rules so that once you get a billion, it's much easier to make your second billion than it was to make your first billion. And that's the breakdown. 
It shouldn't be. You know, like once you, it should be, you know, it should be harder to continue Said, to rise up. When I was a kid, up. they used to say that, but it has started with an M. It was, it, the expression was <laughs> when you make your first million, it's, you know, then it's no looking back. Now it's, you know, 30 years later, it's billion. Yeah, <laughs> well, but that's that. But it, it, it's the either no, way, know, though. That's inflation. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, though, it's the it's the concept that it, once you hit a certain threshold, it's easier to make more money, and that just shouldn't be the case. If we want to have like nothing else works like that. If you talk about exercise, everybody exercises. If you want to lift more weight, then you know, it, or or be able to run faster or run you know, harder or anything like that, to get to average isn't that difficult. But to become exceptional, it takes much more work to go from uh, good to exceptional than it does to go from at, to, to go from mediocre to average. And so that breakdown there. And if we fix that, we'll fix a lot of the problems. Uh, and, well, that, that goes back to the idea of a progressive tax system. Um, correct. Well, I mean, that's going down a whole nother round. Yeah, but the yeah. idea that um, as you as you make more and more um, larger chunks are taken out of your income to kind of go back through society, right? To, to yeah. just kind of cover the, the, the you know, the, the running of the country in other ways. So, and, and it, it, yeah, it creates, it makes it harder. And, and I'm okay with that. See now, so back to, to the, uh, I know that was a, a kind of a sidebar, but back to the thoughts, like, I think that it, it's a positive development for people like Mark Cuban and other billionaires to, to recognize the problem that we have with inequality. And that's not, that everybody shouldn't make the same amount of money. But this has been this. There's been a theme that's run for hundreds of years now. It's you know like the, the most prominent initial one that you you look at it would be Teddy Roosevelt with the Square Deal and then the New Deal and, and so forth. Where if you work hard, doing on it, living on his life, you should be able to live. It shouldn't be that you are constantly you know struggling just to to put some food on the table. And if we set up a system like that, which that seems to be what Cuban is talking about, basically, I, I raised that stuff. The whole concept of a basic income of a thousand bucks, which was with an interesting caveat that I noted, that you got to spend it in the first 10 days or else they take it back or something like that, which, you know, that's either here or there. there. Because one thing that the people who, who work for a living generally spend all their money, you know, and so that's why yeah. any money you give to them goes directly into the economy in full. And that will support the economy. So those type of things make sense. One other piece you have discussed, and we've disagreed a little bit on automation, but that may be where you can marry increased automation with an increase in standard of living, um, where if you, if you cover certain basic necessities for people, then they either have to work less or it's okay if you pay them less, you know, in from a, a market salary standpoint, because... The, the basics are covered. Now, we're a long way from that. And actually, uh, Rabini says in, in his scenario, how as he looks at it, as we as he moves forward, betting that the, the powers that be um, will not be able to adjust. And we're going to keep doing exactly what we're doing in, in, until it causes a recession that's going to last for 10 years. And, but then the people that, that develop and, and, and learn through that are going to implement a more egalitarian system. If that's being the case, then at the end, basically, do we do this now, like Mark Cuban is saying, or are we going to end up doing this in 10 years, uh, after 10 years of pain, like Rabini is saying is going to happen? Um, look, I'd hope for the former, not the latter, right? <laughs> I'd hope that we get ahead of it and don't have to experience the pain. I think that, that'll be the ultimate question. I mean, I'm not yeah. going to try and predict which one happens, but you're right. I mean, there's two choices. We get ahead of it. We see it coming. Um 
enough people can rationalize all that, or we don't, we have a massive amount of pain and people will look back and say, wow, you know, how come we went away from, you know, infrastructure projects that gave people jobs, or how come we didn't see the fact that automation would cause such a large percentage of people to be unemployed, um, that we didn't do something, have some sort of solution for it. And, um, you know, I definitely think it's too early to tell which way all that goes. Uh, but, you know, I hope that it would be the, the first one where we can avoid the pain. But history tells me that it probably won't be, that we probably will, you know, go through some pain before people wake up. Because remember, all this stuff is really all in the abstract and it all is, is artificial. Meaning, by artificial, I mean is this isn't like gravity or the speed of light. This isn't stuff that's natural physics that just has to happen a certain way. We've created economic um, ideas, models, conditions as humans, and so we Correct. can change them. But what happens is we get hardened and we get stuck individually and then collectively in certain mindsets where we think that, you know, something is good and something is bad, which really it's neither. Um, it's just how does it affect, you know, the, the situation at hand? So, you know, like I've thought about this, right? When Ronald Reagan came into office, let's say 1980, 1981, you know, there was a room for an argument that an 83% tax bracket at the top uh, was, was a little bit um, disruptive to capital formation and the way the tax code was, and that by reducing taxes in that way and, and, and investing, you know, changing the tax code in 90, 1986, which allowed for, um, you know, benefits for investing in certain areas and all that, created an economic, um, you know, uh, boom over the 80s and into the 90s. Uh, that same argument is still being used today with a tax rate at 37%. So I don't know if the same argument today makes sense like it might have 40 years ago. And I think that, you know, we as, as, as a culture, as human beings, we tend to hold on to these ideas like they're so nostalgic. And that by changing them, somehow we're going to hurt ourselves. And I think that, um, you know, that's what we got to ask ourselves is, are we willing to experiment and make any changes before the pain comes? Or are we going to get into another depressionary environment, which is going to then force us to look at things like the New Deal style policies and then figure, oh, how come we didn't do that earlier? Well, so, no, I mean, that's exactly it. I yeah. mean, it's like, here's the, one of the, I guess, and I hate to put it like this, but one of the positive outcomes right now is that it has revealed a demand problem that no one can deny. Um, we've had a demand problem, arguably, for a while um, in terms of how much consumer debt, how the explosion of consumer debt, the student loan debt, like the debt bridges the gap between the wages and what needs to be spent in order to maintain the economic system. So we've had a demand problem. It's been it's been covered over by debt, but now you know, like nobody can argue that there's a demand problem. And so conceivably, we could get on the front end. Smart people are saying, "Hey, actually, we have a demand problem. Maybe we should get on the front end." It's possible because you're 100 right. We create these economic systems and constructs, and we actually select the outcomes. We select the winners and losers um, based on how the policy is set up. It's it's literally how. You, it's no different than let's say the NFL or the NBA when they set up, they set up a league and then they set up the rules in terms of how you do business and whether it's a salary cap 
or whether it's a luxury tax, you know, or, or you know, anything like that salary floor. All of those rules are constructs that just say, OK, how's the money going to be spent once it comes in? Who's going to get it? Um, the NFL, NBA, these things are explicit, like the players get in the NBA 50 percent of the revenue. Like the, these it's the same thing with the economy at large. You, we set up now. The problem is that only certain people are aware that all of these things are, are, are decisions that are made, you know, so if everybody's not aware that the, the fact that you're we're making decisions in terms of the winners and losers and how much the winners are going to get, and how much the losers are going to get in our economy, um, then, you know, only certain people are represented if you don't not aware that those decisions. But we have to take control of that. We as a society and say, look, what type of outcomes do we want? OK, let's set up a system that gives us that outcome. And right now, the demand problem is a potential catastrophe looking at us because if people aren't spending money, the economy falls apart. So what, how, what can we do to solve the demand problem? And so it's great that people are talking about getting ahead of that. Like you say, I, I agree. We'll see if people take the lead or take, take the, if people can say, hey, that's a good idea. Let's do that without going through the full depth of the pain or whether we're going to have to go through the full depth of the pain to get there. In the Great Depression, we had to go through the full depth of the pain to get there, to get to the New Deal type of stuff. And then it creates the biggest middle class in the history of the world and, and, and so forth. So maybe that ebb and flow, maybe we just got to do that, you know, every now and again. I think that's um, just going to happen, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of uh, like climate change, right? Uh, you know, the, anyone who is is willing to just look at the evidence and facts, um, and and understands things like chemistry and and you know basics of science, like that's carbon uh, trapped in an area will will you know trap heat, right? Um, the evidence is there that it it it's overwhelming that uh, humans have helped to warm the climate over the last 100, 150 years. By releasing um, and, vast amounts of carbon correct. dioxide. Yeah. And, and the damage that that is causing to the planet is also very evident. And for whatever reason, there's an emotional reason, an ego reason. People don't want to admit that they're wrong. Whatever the case is, there's, there's enough of the population of the world or the country, whatever, that is in denial of these facts. So we aren't able to kind of move ahead and do what's necessary from a planning standpoint as a society to say, okay, in the next, because realistically, I mean, not to say we, we need to be off fossil fuels 100% or anything, but within a 20 year period, if we really, like we, like, like we had the conviction to put a human being on the moon in 1960 or 61, and by 69, a guy was walking on the moon, which is unprecedented in human history. Uh, think about it. <laughs> we had a human being walk on the surface of, I guess it's not a whole planet, but of something else other than the Earth in space yeah. um, within less than a decade after saying we wanted to do that. So is it that unrealistic that we could you know, have solar and wind and other technologies that in 10 years maybe doesn't eradicate fossil fuels, but that could be 30, 50 percent of the energy consumption and help the Earth heal a bit, especially after this um, just after a couple of weeks of the COVID crisis, us seeing all the images from around the world of how the earth can respond so positively so quickly. Yeah. Um, so now we even have that evidence, but there's going to be enough people that deny that, that we're not going to get ahead of the climate crisis until it's too late and it's so much pain. And then whoever's left in humanity is going to say, wow, okay, we got to fix this. So I feel like the same thing is going to happen economically that, it's the human inability, like you said, these people, these billionaires, their ability to pivot so quickly, that, that, that also makes me appreciate why they're probably, like you said, at the top of their games and that they're the billionaires because they have the ability on their journey 
to pivot and not let their egos get in the way, not let their emotional state uh, uh, deviate them from the focus of their goal, whatever that was, you know, in their business and their re- relative industry. And so that's how they're able to have these conversations and, and acknowledge and say, look, four months ago, six months ago, I would have never thought like this. But looking at the situation now, this is what's needed. But Tunde, that, that whole point is undermined by the fact that the, your observation earlier that it's not all of them. You know, so sometimes like there are a lot of reasons that someone can do very well. Some of it's good fortune. Some of it's right place, right time. Some of it's, you know, talent. Some of it's intelligence. Uh, I don't want to extrapolate there, but you touched on something interesting with the environment um, and how like the the need. I think that's a human thing. Like it, it, it only the exceptional can see a problem before it happens and adjust or, or learn from someone else's mistake. Most of the time, people need to learn from their own mistakes or feel the pain in order to respond. Um, and so that may just be part of the human condition. Ideally, you have leadership with foresight that can help because that can help. You know, that can help people avoid problems. If you have leadership with foresight and they can, they can get people on board with doing something before they absolute need, absolutely need to do it. Because, yeah, the environment thing, and, and I want to talk about that, actually, like, you look at Venus, and I always point to this as an example. Venus is hotter than Mercury, um, even though Mercury is much closer to the sun. And the reason is all the, the um, greenhouse gas in Venus's atmosphere. So what we're doing is put a, putting a bunch of greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, and we're saying, okay, you know, I wonder what's going to happen. So hopefully it won't get to the fact that our planet needs to warm to make most places uninhabitable, but maybe it will. Um, one thing I saw this week that I wanted to ask you about, um, and then, you know, we can talk about this briefly and then we, then we can wrap the show, um, right. is I saw a, a, a there's a, a plant, a, a carbon, or excuse me, a, a coal plant in North Dakota that's making a billion dollar bet on coal or, or excuse me, carbon recapture. Let me re-say that, restate that. The, mm-hmm. a coal plant in North Dakota that is making a billion dollar bet on carbon technology recapture so as the carbon is going out of the smokestacks or where you know as it's being released they're capturing that gas and then taking the carbon out and basically releasing a bunch of nitrogen um, which is not a, a greenhouse gas like carbon dioxide is and then they liquefy the carbon and stick it down into the ground um now that is not renewable energy that is not you know, plentiful from the, you still need a fossil fuel for that. But if we mitigate the the concern as far as greenhouse gas, um, is that in the same way that when we used to burn coal, we used to cause acid rain. And then, you know, tech, from a technological standpoint, we figured out a way to, to solve that problem. So here, you know, we're, we're, we're burning coal or the goal is to burn coal, but to figure out a way to solve the problem of releasing all of that carbon into the atmosphere. Um, what do you think on the financial bet, though? First, I'm going to ask you about the, the, the idea of carbon capture next, but on the financial bet that's being made here that, hey, maybe we can do still do coal, but uh, we're going to do it in a way that we think can avoid the, the worst consequence from a, a climate change standpoint. Um, no, I actually think it's great. I mean, it's look, like I said, I don't think we could get off fossil fuel tomorrow. So I think the idea of transitioning to, quote unquote, clean energy um, is going to take time, and you know if, if if companies are willing to invest and 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 do this kind of research to try and you know just clean up the existing uh, ways that we extract uh, resources from the earth and use them for energy, I think it's a positive thing. You know, the guy said in the article, um, "Are we looking for perfect or are we looking for good?" And I think this is one of those examples where 
we shouldn't sacrifice good on the altar of perfect in, 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 in this term, meaning we've got a, a fossil fuel company, a coal company that is willing to, to take a billion dollars and invest it in, in, in trying to have their product be cleaner. Uh, so I think that should be commended and we should, um, you know, we should see how they do and hopefully they, they, they pull it off. So because I think, remember, there's other reasons that it would make sense to do something like that. For example, you know, our country has one of the largest reserves of coal in the world. Uh, just we're lucky that we have, you know, such vast natural resources in the United States. Um, you know, same with our oil reserves are, are pretty strong and natural gas. So the idea is, you know, from a, from a, from a uh, short term, because I know the sun and the wind are also unlimited sources, but that's more long term. But from a short term perspective, you know, one could say it's a national security concern to make sure that we have a solid energy infrastructure and grid. Um, so that means that in the short term, coal and oil will still be necessary um, because you can't run a, a large grid for a metropolitan city the size of New York off, off of uh, wind and solar yet. So, you know, if, if again, if we can maintain our current, you know, way of living and not have to give up energy consumption and all that and, and have the energy that we're using being clean or burn, I'm all for it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, from an economic standpoint, I'd say uh, this is better, uh, leaps and bounds better than them spending this kind of money on to buy lobbyists or to buy <laughs> yeah. scientists. Buy, buy back their stock, let's say. With a or buy back dollars. their stock. Or, or, <laughs> yeah, but no, I prefer no. this. <laughs> to, to, like, oftentimes we'll see energy companies in this space spend that kind of money on lobbyists um, to, to try to just make it make the laws more friendly or the regulations more friendly for them to pollute, you know, with you know, with impunity, or to buy scientists to spew nonsense about how what they're doing isn't a problem. Um, and so actually spending the money to try to address the concerns. Again, looking back to the acid rain thing and how that money was spent on R&D to, to solve that. And now we're spending money to solve this. I think it's a great idea because your point is, is well taken. We don't have to have just one solution, especially in the short term. Uh, we got a lot of coal sitting around, so we can use that. Um, or we can start to use it. We may not want to use it all, you know, for, for the same national security reasons. But, you know, so the sooner we can get to stuff that is plentiful and unlimited, like the sun, like <laughs> the wind, like geothermal, things like that, things that don't run out, the better from an from a economic and a national, excuse me, national security standpoint. Um, but in the short term, hey, you know, if we can make it so that it's less harmful to the, the, the planet, to do what we're doing and to use to, 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 to play in areas where we're strong, then that sounds like a great idea. Um, and again, I, I look at it as the, the, the economic use of the use of the resources towards a something that works for people or works for, for the planet versus to just try to to to, to fool people. Because, you know, I, the, 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 the counter to that is like the, there's been literature for, for a decade plus now on how Exxon spends more money on talking about how how they do work. To, to make things cleaner, then they actually spend an R&D to make things cleaner. You know, so they're just trying to build an image there. Or, you know, and then we know all how the lobbies spend so much money to buy science, not scientists to say, no, global warming isn't real or it's real, but, you know, it's not us causing it. We're releasing all this carbon. That doesn't matter. And, and so that, to me, is the, the most significant thing here. We did a, 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 a show not too long ago um, where we talked about um, the the... Ed educational institutional, you know, institutions like universities getting out of 
investments in fossil fuels and getting into renewables and how that's the type of market solution that could take us to a better place. It doesn't all have to be government regulation and policy. You know, sometimes the market can dictate. And this is another one of those, basically, where the market, nobody's making them do this per se, but they're saying, hey, that maybe there's a market here. We can put some money up and the return will make it worth our while. And that's we all win from that. When the market dictates you do things that are responsible, that's when society wins. Yeah. And just to note, all of the the, we, the articles that we uh, reference when we speak, um, they're all in the show notes. You can go to call it like I see it dot com, and those are there. Um, you know, so no, I, I I think that that is something that provides optimism. Uh, the economic stuff is pretty. Uh, there's there's a lot of pessimism there. Um, you know, but. There are paths forward, you know, like it's not we're, we're not sitting in a situation where there's nothing we can do and we're just going to, to go down the tubes. But there needs to be a lot of will from a political standpoint and the ability to to actually address problems right now. Our politics just isn't set up with that. It seems like primarily our politics is just to point the finger at somebody else and tell them that they're the problem and everything would be OK if it wasn't for them. And. That's just not the case. You don't get stuff done like that. You don't get stuff done like that in business. You don't get stuff like that, that, that done like that in government. You just don't get stuff done like that. But that's that's where our that's what our media wants to do. That's what our leadership wants to do. If it's going to be different, it's going to come from the people. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, we appreciate everybody joining us on this show. Um, call it like I see a podcast. We, we definitely try to bring you uh, real issues and, and give you discussion that, that goes beyond surface level and, you know, not just drop elbows on each other and try to play get the gotcha games. Uh, but look at these things, you know, from a thoughtful standpoint. So until next time, I'm James Keys. I'm Tunde Lana. All right. Subscribe, rate, review. Follow us on Twitter. Call it DN. And we'll see you next time.